0: this song. Good morning. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 10. We've been sharing the last few weeks at, our, at, um, at my church, The Well. Um, some of the highlights that we've been sharing throughout 2 Corinthians is how we view the resurrection, how we view eternity directly affects the way that we live here on earth. So what our view is or what our mindset of that is, directly affects how we view earth, how we view ourselves, and we understand, we're, we're establishing the understanding that the, the power, that anything happens, it happens in God's power and not ours. Um, we are vessels of his service. Uh, so as we look into Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, let's read verses one through ten together and then we'll come back through and, and uh, piece it out a little bit. Second Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in the tent, we groan, being burdened. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's let's pray and ask the Lord to, to control my tongue this morning. Father, we just ask that You would Control the flesh that is delivering a perfectly pure message. So, Father, I know that I can often intercede my own thoughts and, and try and interject my own power, and I ask that You would completely and totally control that which You already do. And So, Father, I ask that as this message is delivered, the hearts and the minds of the receivers are ready to believe whether it be to salvation or whether it to be to rest in the salvation that is the gift from you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in verse 1, we see Paul talking about a tent. Now, in, if you go just back into chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, you see he ends... Chapter 4, with this statement, we'll look at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's actually setting up now to go in and describe our earthly bodies as tents. So he is describing that what we live in is not a house. It's not permanent. It's not forever. But it is actually a tent. The incarnation in John 1.14, it says that when Jesus, the eternal God, came into the world. He tented among us. He put on this earthly tent. God in heaven put on flesh and came here and lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, and rose victoriously. And he describes that, John does, at the incarnation as Jesus coming and tenting among us. So why would Paul use the imagery of a tent? Well, obviously, Paul was formerly Saul, a a Jew who knew Scripture, and he also understood the tabernacle and how it was a tent and it was temporary. It was an insecure, fragile structure that would later become the temple. Paul knew that as a believer, he was a stranger and an alien and a pilgrim in this land. That this is not the permanent, this is not the end-all be-all. Paul was also a tent maker. He made tents for a living. He knew that when he built something like that, he was building something to be taken down and put up multiple times. Moved to different places. Stored for a period of time and taken out of its container to be placed in a temporary setting. And he built that for that very purpose. So he understood what it was to to be a tent. He may have even borrowed a little bit from Peter. Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. And I feel like that's what I'm doing today, is a reminder that since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Paul also knew what it looked like to have a behavior of putting on and taking off. If you remember when they um, when they were stoning Stephen, and in the Scriptures it describes this moment where the Pharisees laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Well, that was very... Pharisees would wear robes and they would have all of the scrolled up, memorized Scripture attached to their clothing. And they would walk around with all of these scrolls on their robes, showing off how much Scripture they had memorized. But they had to take their religion off and place it at the feet of Saul in order to do the nasty deed that they were getting ready to do with Stephen. So he understood even the the complexity of, of understanding what the difference of putting something on and putting something on looked like. Because he saw the hypocrisy of the Pharisees when he was one of them. And so he he is describing to us that, hey, we are tense. We are temporary. Believer, this is a reminder that what we have here is very short and very temporary. Paul is also referencing the tabernacle. And as I read in Kent Hughes' Um, preaching the word commentary, Kent Hughes said this, just as the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling of God until the building of a permanent temple in Jerusalem, Paul makes a connection that our mortal bodies are temporary as well and will be replaced by an imperishable resurrection body. It's nice to have these reminders every once in a while. Paul says if I die and this tent is dismantled, that's good. That's okay, because I have a building. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, right? I have a building. I have a permanent, forever glorified body ahead of me. And Paul says, so that's why I'm not worried about getting stoned to death or getting taken outside the city and beaten. That's why I'm not worried about that. A building suggests a solid foundation, a fixture, security, permanency. A tent represents... A state of a nomad, someone unsettled, someone that says, I'm not staying. It's very interesting that he would use the, the picture of a tent. Not made of hands, scripture says here. Paul says he's he's referencing again Hebrews, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. Mark chapter 14, he says, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands in three days and will build another not made with hands. Not of this creation, but eternal. Do we really believe that our salvation, that our lives are eternal? That we really don't die? That we... Just shed our tent and get our house. You know, so my family and I—we moved uh, years and years ago when my father uh, got out of the, the retired from the military. And we—I was the youngest of seven kids. I think they forgot they had me when they decided to retire. I was like, "Hey, I'm still here, y'all." And they got this big old place up in New Hampshire, bunch of acreage, and there wasn't a house on it. My dad said, we're going to live in this trailer while I build this house. Now, that wasn't very exciting to a seventh grader at the time, but I knew living in that trailer was not my future. I knew that we weren't always going to be in that, that that was temporary. My father said, this is temporary, this is what's coming. And I saw the building begin to go up. I watched the guys pour the foundation. I saw them begin to stick, build the house. I saw that happening. So it was easier for me as I saw the future that I was able to understand my temporary status. So Paul is reminding us that we have a temporary status. And to look and see that things are happening and that God is true to His Word. Paul would face death courageously. He'd go beyond that. He would gladly sometimes face death. He said this to the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 21-25, through 25, he says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in this flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Which yet I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. He's saying, man, I can't even decide if I want to stay here or if I want to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. We're going to get to that later at the end about how that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Who's he talking to? The Philippian church? For your account. For me to stay around here, it's necessary for me to help you guys out. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He says, I don't even want to keep this shell anymore I want to shed the tent I want my building I want to be with Jesus verse 2 through 5 we see uh, something very similar for in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked for while we were still in the tent we groan anybody got some aches and pains Now, some of you younger folk probably don't have as many aches and pains as some of the older folk, but the tent is starting to wear a little bit, right? It's starting to get some rips in the threads. The poles are starting to get bent. Uh, The ropes are starting to loosen up, right? So when the wind comes now, it's a little bit more flabby than when we first tightened that thing down. Paul's saying, understand, that's going to happen. But you, your desire should be that you want to be with the Lord. And what is your purpose, Tent? Is it just to sit and flap in the wind? No. You have a purpose. You're here for a purpose. He said to me, my, my, my son, he says this to me, we, we, uh, we near missed an accident. And he was sitting back, we, we were actually, a, a police car was chasing a vehicle and that vehicle shot right across in front of our vehicle, and so did the police vehicle. And I slammed on the brakes, and I'm telling you, there there had to be an angel in the front of my van that day that stopped that car, because I have no idea how we went that far at 45 miles an hour and came to a complete stop without both of us losing our heads. And he sat back in the chair, and he said, Dad, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go today. Now, at the moment, that was an understandable statement. But then, when we really think about it, if we're really honest, that's really the state of most of us as Christians. We could all probably or may probably all have said that. Oh, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go today. What we're really saying is, this is better than that. That's what we're really saying. If we're truthful, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we're really saying is, this is better than that. I want to see my grandbabies born. I want to see my granddaughter get married. I want to see my sons grow up. I want... What I'm saying is, I want all of that more than I want to be in the presence of the Lord. And that shows me a thermometer of what I really think of being in the presence of the Lord. If you look at Romans 8, 18-25, Romans chapter 8, 18-25, Paul says this to the church in Rome. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, As sons, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Back into our text, 2nd Corinthians chapter five, if you look at verse four, he says there's a phrase there he uses what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. In his letter to the corinthian church the first time paul said this when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory well what does he mean by that well any anytime that a new testament writer says as it is written he's referencing an old testament scripture So we would want to look at the Old Testament Scripture that Paul is referencing in order to truly understand what he's trying to say to us there. And so in Isaiah chapter 25, he says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up in this mountain the covering of, that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all the faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken, and it will be said on this day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord, and we have waited for Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. They didn't say our salvation. They said His salvation. Our salvation belongs to Him. It is a gift that He gave to us. He says, let us rejoice in His salvation. I'll quote John MacArthur from one of his books. He said, In fact, if we don't groan for heaven, like a prisoner longs for freedom, like a sick man longs for health, like a hungry man longs for food, like a thirsty man longs for drink, and like a poor man longs for a payday, there is something wrong. We don't face death with joy and anticipation. Not the pain and suffering physically, necessarily, but what is associated with the death of a believer? Because truly we do not die. Then we have become idols of this fading world if we are not excited to be surrounded by God in heaven. So, to be made like Christ is our purpose. To be made like Him. That's why everything in our life, yours and mine, Christians, we work out things for good. Well, He works things out for our good. That's why if you continue in Romans, where we were, chapter 8, if you continue in Romans chapter 8, verses 28, he says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. I'm going to pause there for a second. I had a conversation with a lady just down the street here actually at the Rockfish Valley Community Center. I had a conversation with her. And she blatantly said, I'm I'm not a follower of Christ. I'm not a follower of any particular religion, but I know that all things work together for good. She said, that's in the Bible, isn't it? And my response to her was, there is something very similar to that in the Bible. Let me read it to you. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. The bad news, ma'am, is that all things work together for good to them that love God, whom God has called son and daughter. I'm afraid that without you acknowledging Him as Lord and Savior, I'm not going to sign off on all these things working out for good for you. Now, we also have to redefine what good is, because some of us go through some really difficult trials in our lives, some of us may spend this entire time on this planet struggling and under persecution and struggling with physical ailments and different things. Do all things work together for good to them that love God? Absolutely. Why? Because He's conforming us to the image of His Son. So we, we don't get to change that Scripture verse and say all things are going to turn out good. All things work together for good. To them who love God and are called according to His purpose. He predestined us, He called us, He justifies us. That's the ordo salutis for those of you that are seminary students. That's the order of salvation. He'll bring us all the way to fulfillment for His purpose. But the purpose isn't fulfilled in justification. It isn't fulfilled in the calling. It's fulfilled in glorification. And if you notice, in Romans, Paul, all of those things that he said are in the present tense. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. God has already seen this. We're the ones that operate in time. This is the joy of the eternality of salvation. Is that time is something that we have to operate under. But it's not anything that God has to operate under. God is as present with us as a three-year-old as He is with us as a 93-year-old. And it's just as live as it is then and now. I know this is mind-blowing and we're all going to have brains of jello squeezing out of our ears when we're done with this. But we cannot even comprehend how good God is. He operates outside of time. This is all present tense for Him. It is all future. Hoping for us he called us justified us glorified us we will in the end have a promise if you look in chapter 5 of our text second corinthians chapter 5 verse 5 he says a word there and i don't know what other versions say and some may even say guarantee but he says there in verse five, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. That word there, guarantee, is the Greek word, arhabon, and it means engagement ring. It means a promissory note. It means there is a promise attached of a future. That's what that word means. It it means that God, by indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, has given us an engagement ring. A promise that you will be my bride. That you will be my wife. That's the promise. It means a down payment of earnest money with a subsequent payment in the future. That's how marriages worked back in the day. The Holy Spirit... Living and dwelling in us is our arabon. It's our guarantee. It's our engagement ring from God. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm leaving my Holy Spirit to live and dwell in you. This is our engagement ring. Anybody here that's been married or is getting ready to be married, how would it feel if every time you guys got in a tussle or an argument or you disagreed on something that the groom said, here, take your ring back. When you start acting right, I'll give you that ring back. If he did that every day, 40 times a day, how comfortable would you be with the union that was getting ready to take place? But the Holy Spirit is a promissory. It's, a, it's, a, it's an engagement ring. God's saying, I love you and I promise you that I'll be back for you. I promise you. That your identity is now. When a, when a woman got an engagement ring back in, 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 in Biblical day, she was already recognized as that person. Nobody offered her anything. Nobody offered her anything because she was spoken for. That word spoke, that, that term she was spoken for. Can God go back on his word? Is God going to renege on a promise? No. First Peter chapter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. For now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Our hope, our desire, our, our, our longing should be to shed this and to be with Him in His presence verses 6-9, through we we see where he wraps it up and just like he did at the end of chapter 4, he says, so don't lose heart. This week he says, so we are always of good courage in verse 6. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Paul knew that Christ was always with him and that he was in continual communion with him. But nevertheless, Paul's residence in his present body meant that in a way, he was away from the Lord. Because if you ever read Paul's writings before, and you see where he talked in Romans about the struggle where he says, I do the things I don't want to do and I, I'm doing what I shouldn't do. and I, The inner self desires this thing, but I'm wrapped in this flesh. The outer shell. And Paul's saying, there's still this thing that causes a separation between me and the Lord. We should long to be with our master. I'll share one more little personal story, I might be sharing too many. But I have a dog named Jake, okay? And that's not a country song, y'all. I'm just telling you, I do have a dog, and his name is Jake. I have a dog named Jake. And Jake is about 95 pounds, and he has about a 35-pound tail. And any time that I come anywhere near him, that tail starts to wag. And he's usually nestled up close to a wall. And it wham, 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 wham. I can't get up and sneak a midnight snack at night because the wham, 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 wham against that wall. He can lay in the, on the back porch all day long. And as soon as my truck pulls in the driveway, he's knocking the bricks off of the side of that porch with his tail. He is excited in the presence of his master. Right? Sometimes I wish we had tails. I wish we had tails sometimes. We'd see if they were wagging on Sunday morning or if they weren't. Or if they were tucked between their legs and they were understanding that they had done. We would be able to tell a lot about each other. And about when we mention Jesus right now. How many people's tails would be wagging. And how many people's tails would be tucked between their legs. Because they don't understand that God has a gift of free salvation and it is not based on your actions, but it is in His abundant love. The actions uh, uh, do have meaning. And Paul addresses that here as we end. He says, hey, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single one of us. He talks about the building a foundation of Christ in our Works will be judged by fire, not for salvation, but as a reward that we will present to the Lord. So our works do matter, but they don't have anything to do with salvation. Someone who does not profess Christ, someone who does not acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, they will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged based on their works. But believer, not us. Because God sees His Son when He sees us. He looks down and sees His Son who was perfect and died sacrificially and rose victoriously. He sees the applied blood of Christ on us. And we don't have to stand and give an account for our actions for salvation. But someone who does not believe will have to stand and try to merit themselves into heaven. And the Bible says, none. None are righteous and so those actions that we do based upon the grace that we've received not in order to obtain that grace brother and sister we do not have to work for our salvation we work for God because of our salvation as a result of understanding the infinite mercy and grace believe today if you don't believe that Believe today, if up until this point you have been trying to merit your way into God's graces, stop it and believe today in the gift of eternal salvation. If You've already figured that out. Or if you haven't by today, we're going to get a perfect body. We're going to be in perfect fellowship with God. We're going to be in a perfect place. We're not there now. We're not there now. But we have it. And it's there. And it's it's already happened for God. It's going to happen for us. We are stalled by time. God is not. Unfortunately, and I'll end with a little bit of a, a plea to us as Christians. A growing moment for us. Oftentimes, our view of eternity is shaped by our culture and fictional things within our culture. We often... You look at cartoons that have the strumming angels with harps and uh, the devil pops in every once in a while and tries to pull somebody down. We have this cultural view of eternity. Christians, if we could, could we stop using the term afterlife? We don't have an afterlife. We have a continued life. We don't have an afterlife. We have a continued life. We have the hope of and the presence of Jesus, the fulfillment of hope, we have an eternity with Him. Our tails should be wagging right now as we talk about it. We should be getting so excited that the, the things of this world are, are, are faded in our sight because of our hope. the the wars and the terrorisms and all of the things that are going on, all of the injustices, all of those things that are happening as a result of the fall, as a result of sin, all of those things that are happening around us, our joy is in the Lord. And when we have that eternal focus, when, when we live in view of eternity, we're truly living. Live in view of eternity. We're truly living. And then we want so desperately for others to believe that, understand that, and become a brother and sister in that. Because that is how we make an impact in a dark world, is by spreading light. But it takes us being focused on the right things. And so I will challenge us that we get our view of eternity from Scripture and not from a plethora of what we would even consider evangelical writings. There are a plethora of books. The number one selling evangelical book in 2015 was Heaven is for Real. They made it a movie. Boy Who Came Back from Heaven uh, by Kevin Malarkey. My Journey to Heaven by Marvin Brednan. Flight to Heaven by Dale Black. To Heaven and Back, a true story. So it must be true if if we add a true story on the end. Mary Neal wrote that. 90 Minutes in Heaven by Don Piper. Nine Days in Heaven by Dennis Prince, 23 Minutes in Hell by Bill Weiss. David Platt described these books as selling fiction as nonfiction in an evangelical marketplace. Stay with me. Some of you have read those books and and I have read some myself. We must get our view of eternity from Scripture. Proverbs 30 verse 4 says, Who has ascended to heaven and come down? John 3.12-15 If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. There are four biblical writers who have had visions of heavenly things. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Paul and John. Now, bear with me. I, I, I'm not trying to cram a point home. I'm trying to help us so that we can truly get a biblical identification of eternity. These are prophetic visions, no details of hallows or horns or rotted teeth or blue images. Paul in 2 Corinthians verse 12, uh, uh, chapter 12, verses 2 through 4, he says that he doesn't even know whether it was. He was in his body or out of his body. He says in in verse 4, And I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. For us to live in view of eternity, we have to take the focus off of us. Things like that focus heaven on us. And we've even said, and it's absolutely true, That when we have a friend who passes, or a spouse who passes, or a grandma or grandpa who passes and goes to heaven, heaven is a better place. That's right. There's 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 no wrong in you feeling that way. But if your only reason for wanting to be in heaven is because grandpa's there, you have the wrong desire. It will be a reunion of the saints. But our desire should be more than wanting to be Uh, uh, an elevated family reunion with great food it should be that we want to be in the presence of our savior and that is what we long for the bonus points to heaven is the gathering of the saints from years past times past and our lives past that is the bonus of heaven but it is not the focus of heaven And so when we begin to create novelties of making heaven about us, we're losing the focus and the purpose and we're taking glory from God, which makes us idolaters of ourselves, which is the fall. So, brothers and sisters, or if you're seated in this room right now and you are struggling with faith, It is God's gift of salvation. You cannot earn it. And you will stand before the judgment seat one day and you will either offer your works for a reward to return to Christ or you will stand before Him and say, this is what I did in order to obtain myself in your presence. And depart from me. I never knew you. That's... Not anything I'll ever hear. And I hope that it's not anything you will either. Live in view of eternity. If you have become a building here, if this life has become all you have to live for, change it. It is never too late to move into a tent. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to remind my brothers and sisters of our temporary status. Thank You, Lord, for the reminder of Your goodness and Your powerful and wonderful grace and mercy and Your abundant love for Your created that You made a way, that You put on flesh, that You dwelled in the same tent that we have to dwell in. And You lived it perfectly And You died sacrificially. And You rose victoriously. And Lord, may we be longing for that completion of Your return and our glorification. Father, we love You. And we thank You for making a way. And Lord, we are sorry for the state of this world and the sin that is so rampant throughout it. But we know that our hope is in You. We know that you have a purpose for us. For you predestined us, you called us, you justified us, and you glorified us. In Jesus' name, amen.